Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, murder, and the death of minors. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In our earlier episode on Tent Girl and Julie Doe, we talked about unsolved crime databases like the Doe Network. These databases help law enforcement agencies nationwide identify unknown victims. People can submit information, perhaps on missing loved ones, then website volunteers review the submission. If there's a viable lead, they send it to authorities. Authorities can compare these leads with DNA evidence to try and solve decades-old crimes. But what if a crime also spans oceans? And what if the hit authorities are waiting for isn't about a victim, but a living criminal, like a wanted fugitive? Fortunately, there are international databases to help countries coordinate their crime-solving efforts. If two countries enter matching DNA information, they'll get an automatic alert. That usually only happens for one of two reasons. The fugitive has committed another crime, or they've died. Our story today is about such a fugitive. A man who made it onto the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And possibly still roams the globe. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, We'll learn about a former U.S. government official suspected of murdering his entire family and the possible state secrets that allowed him to escape justice. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now 
Listen for free on Spotify. The case of William Bradford Bishop defies categorization. It starts with horror, an act of stunning violence against an innocent family. As the plot unravels, it becomes an international thriller, a globe-trotting manhunt that spawned conspiracy theories and rumors of state secrets. But its greatest mystery is an unanswered question. What could drive a man to do the unthinkable? It all starts around noon on March 2nd, 1976, in a remote part of North Carolina. A Forest Service worker named Wilma Swain surveys the area from an observation tower when she notices smoke billowing in the distance. It looks like a small brush fire. Not ideal, but nothing out of the ordinary. Wilma radios a forest ranger on the ground named Ronald Brickhouse. Brickhouse expects to find some burned construction debris because there's a house being built nearby. But once he tames the largest flames, the ranger realizes his afternoon has taken a dark turn. He can see that someone dug a decent-sized hole. It's about the size of a bathtub, as he later tells the Washington Post. There's a fresh mound of dirt next to the hole, and inside it, are two human bodies. There's also a gas can and a shovel off to the side. The gas can is still on fire, so Brickhouse puts it out. Then he calls the sheriff, and soon authorities arrive on scene, including state investigator Lewis Young. Lewis and another SBI agent begin to carefully remove the bodies. That's when they find another one and another. By the end, there are five in total. Each victim is partially burned with head wounds. However, officers can't determine some key details, including the fact that the victims are two adult women and three young boys. Lewis's team scours the area for clues. They cut blood samples from the victim's clothing and collect the gas can and shovel as evidence. Then they notice the shovel still has a price tag. It's partially burned, but Lewis can make out a few letters. O-C-H-H-D. He thinks it's the name of the store the shovel is from and that the final H and D stand for hardware. This is before the days of DNA profiling and there are no missing person reports for five people in the area. So what the officers have before them are their only clues. And if they're going to solve this, it will be through old-fashioned detective work. Lewis focuses in on the letters. Somehow, officers know that there's no local store with O-C-H-H-D in the name, so Lewis and his partner hop into his cruiser and search outside the state for any matches. After a while of this, they turn up empty. So they contact other agencies across the region. A few days later, they reach the DC Metropolitan Police. As it turns out, they know of a store with OCH in the name. 
Poach Hardware Store in Potomac, Maryland. Investigators are quickly sent to Poach Hardware and ask the store owner if he remembers who bought the shovel. The owner can't recall. Lewis goes to plan B. He knows it's a lot to ask, but he wants to leave a flyer at the store that contains descriptions of the victims and photos of their bodies from the morgue. It seems like the plan is to enlist the store owner's help gathering information from the public. The store owner agrees. Now all Lewis can do is wait. Meanwhile, about eight miles away in Bethesda, Maryland, a woman who we'll call Linda notices something strange. For the last week, newspapers have been piling up on her next door neighbor's front porch. It's not unusual for the bishops to be away. William Bradford Bishop, or Brad, loves to travel. He and his wife take their three sons on weekend ski trips all the time. What is unusual is that they didn't give Linda a heads up. She usually collects their mail when they're away. Linda can't shake the feeling that something's wrong. So on March 8th, 1976, she calls the Montgomery County Police and asks them to check on the family. Officer Mike McNally responds. As he pulls up to the house, he spots blood in the driveway. He follows it to the front door and steps inside. The den and stairwell are splattered red. McNally braces himself for what he'll find on the second floor. To his dismay, all four bedrooms are bloodied. Perhaps the most troubling thing McNally sees is in one of the boys' rooms. On the ceiling above the top bunk, there are indentations. The officer stares. His stomach turns with the realization they're hammer marks. Someone bludgeoned the victim. In McNally's words, the whole scene is akin to a horror house. But for all the horror, there are no bodies. There's also no sign of forced entry, and none of the neighbors heard any screams. The tragedy would be a total mystery if it weren't for one Montgomery County officer who heard about the bodies discovered in North Carolina and a flyer posted at Poach's Hardware. The officer retrieves the flyer and brings it to the bishop's neighborhood to see if anyone recognizes the victims. When he shows the flyer to a woman who used to babysit for the bishops, she cries out. It's them. Or at least five of them. 37-year-old Annette Bishop, her three sons, 14-year-old William, 10-year-old Brenton, and 5-year-old Jeffrey. The second woman is Annette's mother-in-law, 68-year-old Lobelia Bishop. There's one person unaccounted for, Brad Bishop. Neighbors say they haven't seen or heard from Bishop in about a week. The family station wagon and golden retriever Leo are also gone. Given all this, plus the fact that there are no signs of forced entry into the home, Maryland detectives now suspect Bishop was responsible, meaning he brutally killed his wife 
mother, and three sons with a hammer. Soon after the victims are identified, Bishop is indicted in absentia on five charges of murder. Now he's not just missing. William Bradford Bishop is on the run. Sixty years after the release of their first studio album, the Beatles fanbase has never been greater or more curious. Hi, it's Carter. Right now on Conspiracy Theories, dive into the magical mystery surrounding the Fab Four in a three-part special called Beatlemania. Sex, drugs, death, and more death. The history of the Beatles and their Fab fandom is rife with conjecture. And we're taking on the hits. Was Paul replaced by a lookalike? Did Yoko incite the band's demise? And are there really any hidden messages in their lyrics? So many conspiracies, so little time. Before Swifties, before the Beehive, there was Beatlemania. Catch this three-part special now by following the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In March 1976, Maryland investigators try to find a motive as to why Brad Bishop may have killed his family. They soon learn that Bishop isn't the average suburban dad. He works for the State Department as a foreign service officer. He speaks five languages, has two master's degrees, and has been stationed overseas in Italy, Ethiopia, and Botswana. Before that, he was a military intelligence officer. To the outside world, Bishop's life seems perfect. A stellar career, married to his high school sweetheart, three beautiful kids. He's the last person you'd think could commit such a heinous crime. But as detectives keep interviewing people who knew Bishop, they realize not everything was as it seemed. The family lived overseas for years. In the early 70s, they moved back to the D.C. area. Bishop's mother, Lobelia, was so happy for them to come home, she helped her son with a $30,000 down payment for a house. And when her husband passed away, Lobelia moved into the spare bedroom. But there were other reasons for her financial help. The IRS was auditing the bishops, and money was tight. Annette, who'd always been a stay-at-home parent, was also thinking of going back to work. Bishop probably didn't like this. According to WBIR in Knoxville, quote, those who knew him described Bishop as intense, self-absorbed, and quick to anger. He was the head of the household, and he made sure Annette and the children got that. At risk of losing this power dynamic, Bishop's solution was to get a promotion. 
Brad Bishop dreamt of becoming an ambassador one day. Some would say he obsessed over it. Annette wasn't a fan of the idea. She liked their suburban American life and didn't want to move back overseas. But Bishop was determined. He did everything he could to climb the ladder, fighting tooth and nail for minor career bumps that could move him closer to his goal. Over time, Bishop's competitiveness brought a lot of stress. He was reportedly prone to violent outbursts whenever things didn't go his way, and he began experiencing stress-induced insomnia and depression, for which he sought professional help. That brings us back to 1976, when investigators tracked down Bishop's psychiatrist. They hope he'll lend insight into Bishop's state of mind, but the man won't talk to them because of patient-physician confidentiality. Still on the search for Bishop, detectives obtain his bank statements. They talk to his friends, colleagues, and a few witnesses. Soon, they piece together what Bishop might have done. Here's what they lay out. On March 1st, 1976, 39-year-old Bishop goes to work at the State Department. Like every day, he's clean-shaven, but unlike most days, he's got a pep in his step. That's because it's a big day. The annual promotions are being posted. Bishop, sure, his name will be on the list. But when the time comes for him to check the memo posted in the hallway, he has to scan it three times just to make sure he's reading it right. Because his name's not there. Bishop storms off. At some point, he runs into his colleague, Roy Harrell. He tells Roy how mad he is. He deserved that promotion. Roy tries to calm him down, but Bishop only becomes angrier. He fumes for the rest of the day before heading out at 5.30 p.m. But before he goes home, he makes a few stops. He goes to the local mall and buys a gas can and sledgehammer. From there, he goes to the gas station, most likely to fill up the can. Then he drives about 10 minutes to poach hardware and buys a shovel. It's not until after dark that Bishop finally heads home. Once there, he enters the house and brutally attacks his entire family. Under cover of darkness, he drags each body into the back of his station wagon. Then he loads up their dog, Leo, and gets behind the wheel. He drives for five hours before pulling into the woods in a remote area of North Carolina. There, he digs the shallow grave, dumps the bodies, and sets them on fire. He throws the gas can and shovel into the flames, too. Finally, he takes Leo and flees. So, that's the possible timeline of events detectives piece together. Possible being the operative word. They don't know for sure what happened, and they don't get any new information for about a week. 
When they do, it only raises more questions. A witness comes forward and says they spotted Bishop at a sporting goods store. Bishop's credit card statement proves he was there. The store is roughly 130 miles from the burn site. The witness's timeline puts Bishop there a few hours after setting the fire. But that is not all the witness tells investigators. Apparently, Bishop was with an unknown woman. Authorities don't know who the woman could be. And unfortunately, by the time they get this tip, Bishop's trail goes cold. In mid-March, about two weeks after the murders, investigators discover Bishop's abandoned station wagon in Tennessee's Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That's about 500 miles away from the crime scene. Officers find some alarming things inside the car, including a gun and some bloody clothes. They also find dog treats and a receipt from the sporting goods store in North Carolina, which shows that Bishop purchased tennis shoes there, presumably to replace his blood-covered ones. Finally, they find hiking maps, which suggest Bishop took off into the mountains. That isn't that far-fetched for someone like Bishop. The Foreign Service officer gained all sorts of outdoor skills during his time overseas, even as a pilot's license. It's safe to say he's comfortable navigating unfamiliar terrain. Searching for him, however, is not as simple. The park spans more than 500,000 acres. Still, FBI agents give it their best shot. They spend days searching every trail by foot. They bring in bloodhounds, which pick up a scent at the visitor's center. Agents speak with park employees there, reveal that a man resembling Bishop passed through in early March. In an effort to cover ground quickly, the Bureau flies helicopters over the mountaintops. But in the end, they don't find anything. By March 26th, they call off the search in the Smokies. Agents now think Bishop either succumbed to the elements or managed to escape entirely. To be safe, they put out public alerts. The public is already following the case, but the FBI wants to keep citizens on high alert. They warn that Bishop should be considered armed and extremely dangerous, and that he may have suicidal tendencies. Despite all these efforts, the case grows cold. It's like Brad Bishop disappeared into thin air. That is, until he's spotted halfway across the world. In 1978, a woman named Barbara Egerty is in Stockholm, Sweden. She's walking down the street one day when a man catches her eye. There's something familiar about him. He's got a beard, so she can't completely make out his features. Barbara glances at him a few times until finally it clicks. The man trailing her is Brad Bishop. Barbara's heart races. She and Bishop were friends when they worked together in Ethiopia years ago, 
but now she knows Bishop's a dangerous, wanted man. Somehow, she loses sight of him. According to a State Department memo, Barbara saw Bishop twice in one month and believed he was following her. She reports this to the FBI, who contact their Swedish counterparts. By the time the agencies speak, though, it's too late. No one can find the man Barbara described. Swedish authorities put her house under surveillance in case Bishop comes looking for her. He never does. Then, six months later, the FBI gets something else to grab onto. In January of 1979, a State Department employee is vacationing in Sorrento, Italy. The employee is none other than Roy Harrell, Bishop's former colleague who he ran into the day he learned he wasn't getting promoted. Roy is about to hop on a bus to Rome. As he later explains in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack, he stops in the men's room first and there's another man in there. The man has a beard and long hair and looks a little disheveled. But there's something familiar about him. Roy does a double take. He stares at the man and the man stares back. They're both frozen. Finally, Roy utters the words, You're Brad Bishop, aren't you? The man, presumably Bishop, replies, Oh God, no. Then he runs. Roy chases after him, but the man escapes down the cliffs toward a marina where boats stop on their way to the island of Capri. Like Barbara Egerty, Roy reports the incident to U.S. authorities. Once again, by the time the two countries connect, Bishop has seemingly evaporated. Now, that's assuming the man was Bishop. Seems kind of incredible that he could have fled the country and escaped to Europe as a wanted fugitive, but it's worth pointing out that Bishop had a couple factors on his side. First, he'd been gone for a week before his family was identified. That gave him a head start. Plus, his job in D.C. involved creating passports. He could have easily made a fraudulent one. That could also explain his ability to hide in plain sight overseas. A decade passes since the murders, and investigators are no closer to finding their suspect than they were in the weeks after the crimes. Then, in 1994, a woman named Jean Wadsworth and her husband, who are former neighbors of the bishops, are visiting Switzerland. One day, while waiting for their train, Jean catches sight of a man on the opposite train staring back at her. Jean's caught off guard. It takes her a moment, then she recognizes Brad Bishop. Their eyes are locked. Bishop panics. He throws on a pair of sunglasses and hides his face in a newspaper. Soon, his train pulls away. As it does, Jean notices the man laughing. Jean is stunned but her husband encourages her not to report the sighting. He thinks that due to language barriers, nothing will come of it. The next day, Jean goes against his advice. She calls the FBI, and the agent on the other end agrees that the man could have been Bishop. But, as you might have guessed, 
history repeats itself. Swiss authorities are notified too late. It seems like Bishop may have gotten away for good. Except, half a world away, two Maryland detectives uncover a clue that had been hidden for years right under the investigators' noses. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It's the early 90s, a decade and a half since the Bishop family murders. Montgomery County Sheriff Ray Knight has been working the case ever since he was a deputy in the fugitive squad. He's no closer to solving it, but he still can't let it go. Knight goes back to the beginning. Maybe there's something they missed the first go-around. He sends Deputy Robert Kiefer to the State Department to look through Bishop's file. Kiefer probably doesn't think he's going to find anything, so many others have poured over this case. Surely if there was anything to be found, someone would have already. But as Kiefer flips through the file, he stumbles upon a web of questionable characters that Bishop was apparently tied to. There are a lot of pieces of the story missing, but Kiefer gains some major revelations from a letter he comes across, one he's never heard about before. It's addressed to Brad Bishop from a convicted bank robber named Albert Kenneth Bankston. The return address is a federal prison in Marion, Illinois. It was sent 16 days after the Bishop family murders. The letter had apparently been filed away at the State Department unnoticed for 17 years. Kiefer's eyes race over the words. Bankston references two previous letters he'd sent to Bishop, both prior to the murders. He mentions instructions on how to get to the area where the bodies were eventually dumped. Apparently, the site was recommended by another man who's currently in jail named David Paul Allen. There's also mention of a man who's only referred to as Sonny and an unnamed woman. It seems that these two people and Bankston, Allen, and Bishop were in on some kind of plot together. Kiefer can't believe what he's reading. Bishop had always been thought to be a lone actor, but could there be a bigger conspiracy afoot? Kiefer wants to question these people. Unfortunately, Bankston died of cancer nine years prior, so Kiefer starts with David Paul Allen. Allen serving time in a Michigan prison for an undisclosed crime, but he's willing to speak to Kiefer over the phone. He tells Kiefer that back in 1976, when he wasn't yet behind bars, Bishop contacted him and his associates. He wanted to hire them to kill his family. It's unclear how Bishop learned of this apparent crime ring, but we do know that they planned to strike while he was away on a work trip in Europe about a month and a half before the actual murders. They were supposed to show up pretending to do repairs on the house. 
it would have been Bishop's perfect alibi. But ultimately, the crew backed out. Alan doesn't say why. Next, Kiefer tracks down Sonny. It takes the officer some time to find him because, as it turns out, he's in witness protection in Maine, but he does find him. But just because he can talk to Sonny doesn't mean Sonny wants to talk to him. The man denies knowing anything about Bishop's plot. But he adds that even if he did, he and his crew wouldn't have gone through with the hit anyway because hurting children was against their code. Kiefer shares all this intel with Sheriff Knight. They decide that Kiefer should go back to the State Department and take another look at Bishop's file. Maybe there's something in there that can fill in the gaps. When he gets there, Bankston's letter is gone. The State Department claims that an FBI agent had been poking around the file since Kiefer's last visit. That doesn't make any sense to Kiefer. Why would the FBI take the letter? Kiefer tries to track the agent down, but as he told Bethesda Magazine, quote, nobody could even tell us this guy existed. For Kiefer and Sheriff Knight, the trail ends there. Instead, several conspiracy theories spring up over the years. In 1998, the Today Show runs a segment about Bishop's case, including interviews with one of Bishop's former co-workers and Sheriff Knight. They present a theory that Bishop had secretly been working for the CIA. In 2011, an old friend of the family builds on this idea. He writes in a memoir that when he first heard about the murders, he wondered if someone other than Bishop had committed them out of revenge because Bishop might have been a spy. Aside from these ideas, leads wane over time. Still, authorities don't give up. In April of 2014, the FBI adds Brad Bishop to their top 10 most wanted list. They hope it'll drum up attention and therefore more leads. They even commission an image of what Bishop would look like in his late 70s. In July of that year, the popular crime show, The Hunt with John Walsh, airs an episode on Bishop. In Scottsboro, Alabama, a man named Jeremy Collins sees the episode. He listens as John Walsh recounts Brad Bishop's gruesome crimes. The episode shows a picture of Brad Bishop. Jeremy squints. He's seen that man before. A few months prior, the Scottsboro police reopened the case of a John Doe who was killed in a hit and run back in 1981. In hopes of finding someone with information, they re-released the man's photo. Jeremy saw that photo and now, He thinks that John Doe and Brad Bishop are the same person. Jeremy is soon in contact with Scottsboro police, who then shared John Doe's photo with detectives in Maryland. The Montgomery County Sheriff is just as convinced as Jeremy. John Doe looks a lot like Brad Bishop. If it is Bishop, that means he's been dead for 33 years. To find out for sure, Authorities exhume John Doe's body. 
At the time of the murders, DNA testing wasn't readily available, but officials preserved evidence from the crime scene, including some of Bishop's used cigarette butts. The FBI sends his remains to their forensics lab, where they'll compare his DNA to Bishop's. It takes about two months to get the results, and when they do, their hopes are shattered. The DNA samples do not match. An FBI spokeswoman says the Bureau is still hopeful they'll solve the Bishop case. Leads like this are necessary, and one day they hope they'll find the key. Despite what the FBI said, their urgency wanes over the years. In 2018, they removed Bishop from the most wanted list. His addition was already a big deal, but his removal might be a bigger one. Since 1950, Bishop is only the 10th person to get taken off the list without being caught, dying, or having charges dropped. The Bureau simply didn't gain any new evidence by adding him to the list. Once again, an FBI spokesperson assures the world that agents are still on the case, but seeing as Bishop would be 81 years old, they don't think he's much of a threat anymore. That was in 2018. As of this recording, Bishop would be 86 years old if he's still alive. He's the only person who's ever been a suspect in the murder of his family. Although he's been spotted all over the world, according to the FBI, the only confirmed sighting was at the sporting goods store, and that's thanks to the credit card confirmation. Everything after that is purely speculative. But authorities still haven't given up. The FBI shared Bishop's DNA profile with international agencies. Theoretically, if another country comes across an unidentified body, all they have to do is enter the DNA information into their database, and U.S. authorities will be alerted to a match. Until that occurs, the FBI urges the public to be on the lookout for Brad Bishop. He could be anywhere in the world. If you have any information about William Bradford Bishop, contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on William Bradford Bishop, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bethesda Magazine's article, The Man Who Got Away, by Eugene L. Meyer, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Alex Burns 
edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy.